This is the voice of the Trumpet Magazine. News, economy, politics, trends, discovery, health, family, the Bible, the future. This is Trumpet Hour, the week in review. Hello and welcome to Trumpet Hour and our weekly review of all the important news. It's February 2nd, 2024. I'm Jeremiah Jacques. And here with me in our studio in Edmond, Oklahoma, is Andrew Miller. Joining us from Henley in Arden, England, is Mihailo Zekic. Linking up from Harare, Zimbabwe, is Rafaro Manyepa. And joining us from Ontario, Canada, is Daniel DeSanto. Well, we'll begin with a look at the Middle East. So, Mihailo, what were some of the stories that caught your eye this week? So, on Sunday, there was a terror attack in Istanbul, Turkey. Two gunmen affiliated with the Islamic State uh, came in and had a shooting spree, killed one Turkish national. Turkey obviously has had problems with uh, Islamic influence in its government per se, but actual terror attacks, especially against the Christian minority, has been pretty rare and it obviously has caught the eye of the Catholic Church worldwide. How President Erdogan and how Pope Francis responds to this still remains to be seen. On January 31st, Axios also released uh, a story claiming that United States Secretary of State Antony Blinken was conducting a review in the State Department of whether or not it be possible or likely advisable to recognize a Palestinian state after the Gaza war has concluded. To this point, the U.S. policy was that there be no recognition of a Palestinian state without um, Israel first giving the green light. Looks like they're moving past that. But with how the war is taking a twist and turn, it seems like every new day, a lot of these rumors get dispelled. A lot of these uh, rumors get confirmed. A lot of these rumors get changed as uh, circumstances change. So might be might mean something, might not. We'll certainly keep our eyes on that. Okay, yeah, some uh, notable developments there for sure. And then there was also a major development with uh, some speculation about how the war could possibly come to an end soon. Yes, so the same day the Axios piece came out, Reuters uh, came out quoting a senior Hamas official that Hamas has received and was studying an Israeli proposal for a ceasefire, which ties in with a few other proposals that some in the international community are hoping may turn into a formal end of the war. Uh, According to the proposal, Hamas would release all the hostages that it has from Israel, including military hostages, including the bodies of hostages that have since died in exchange for an untold number of Palestinian prisoners released. But one of indications are that it will be much higher than the last batch of prisoners Israel had released and hopefully, from Hamas's perspective, extend this into an actual, I won't say peace deal, but a, a, a permanent cessation of hostilities. Uh, Qatar, the... Uh, Arab state that's mediating between Israel and Hamas has said that Hamas is preliminarily uh, thinking this could work. Hamas, once those comments came out, they said that those comments were rushed and uninformed. So we don't know how far along this process is. We don't know all the details, of course. But if this were the case, uh, what the international community has been pressuring Israel for the longest time is to back down. You're going in too far. The death toll is too high. Uh, you're becoming the aggressor here. We need to have something that stops the war, which in other words means Hamas stays in power. For the longest time, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has resisted that, rightly so, claiming that leaving Hamas in Gaza would mean October 7th could happen again sometime down the road, probably a lot sooner than most people think. And this is tying in with previous reports that Israel is negotiating with Hamas. Looks like Israel might actually be going forward with this. Why exactly? Is the pressure starting to get to them? Do they have advanced knowledge that Hamas is going to execute all the hostages and they want to save people at the last minute? Are they expecting Hamas to uh, predictably do something to violate the agreement, and then they can continue fighting while getting a few hostages out before then? I don't know. But as more and more players in this war are talking, as Israel is making offers, as Hamas is looking at offers, as 
countries like Qatar are putting in their airplane. It looks like there actually is another ceasefire in the works, and it may actually be a pretty realistic option. So this is uh, just a major development in the war if this goes through. You know, to have those hostages from Israel released after almost four months would be just such a tremendous relief. But of course, the other side of it is that this agreement, as you said, this would prevent Israel from completing its eradication of these satanic jihadists. But I think that you're right there that the Israelis might not have to wait too long for some Hamas member to be overcome by, you know, his religious fervor and to launch a rocket somewhere. And then the deal is off and they could continue eradicating the terrorists. So it's hard to say exactly what will happen, but this uh, this could mean that the end is in sight for the war. And I'd like to hear your thoughts, Mahalo, on what a post-war Gaza looks like. Well, if you ask different people, they'd give you different answers. Up until this point, a lot in the international community were saying we need to revitalize the Palestinian Authority. That's the the uh, gov- government in the West Bank that uh, is run by Mahmoud Abbas. We need to bring them back into the picture. We need to bring them back into Gaza. We tried that once, and then Hamas ended up throwing PA members off buildings uh, in 2007, which is how they got control. And there's certainly a lot of evidence to suspect they are implicated in the October 7th attack as well. They're not nice people. But if a ceasefire were to happen and Israel were to withdraw, I mean, th- th- there is no way to bring the PA into Gaza. You're basically leaving Gaza to Hamas. Um, I'm sure a lot of politicians in the West Bank that were hoping to extend their influence would might feel a little bit betrayed by that. But... Also, a lot of the people in Gaza are starting to get a bit fed up with the direction their leaders are taking the country. Now, that was from uh, a video that's circulating on social media that hasn't necessarily been corroborated by statistics or numbers yet, but that's from a pretty large crowd in Han Yunus that second city of Gaza that's capturing all the media right now with Israel's incursions into there. Uh, what they're saying is, is Netanyahu and Sinwar, we want a ceasefire. Netanyahu and Sinwar, we want a ceasefire. I mean, it's pretty common for people in Gaza and other Palestinian areas to call it Netanyahu for the, the treatment he's giving them. But to call out Sinwar at the same time, that Yahya Sinwar is the leader or Hamas's political leader in Gaza. For one thing, he in ordinary times, you could get shot or or tortured in, in some dark dungeon for saying that. But the fact that so many people are saying that, given the circumstances, shows that this is the same population that was cheering when Hamas was bringing back all these captives on October 7th. But they're not cheering anymore. There's a different mood, and they're blaming their leaders for it. So whatever happens, again, there's a lot of unknowns with this deal. It might not even happen. Hamas might break it immediately, and then we're into something completely different. But whatever happens, uh, the Gazan people are starting to get fed up with the direction their leaders are taking them. And at the very least, there are other players in the area, like the PA, that are eyeing Gaza and would like a piece of the pie and may do some maneuvering to get that piece of the pie. So it looks like pressure is really coming from all directions on on both sides of the conflict. Could you uh, briefly discuss the big picture of this whole dynamic and let the listeners know what they could read to understand it from kind of a high-altitude point of view? Of course. So again, we don't know how this is going to play out. Uh, It may fizzle out as early as next week. This may be solidified as early as next week. But the reason we at the Trumpet are especially interested in what happens with the Israel-Palestinian peace plans is because of a prophecy in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, verses 1 to 2, which speaks of this great chaotic time when all nations are gathered to Jerusalem, when God himself comes down to fight him. You can parallel that with other prophecies. This, uh, This is referring to the second coming. And it specifically mentions that half of the city would go into captivity, which means that there is half of the city to go into captivity. And one of the biggest issues in the Middle East is who controls Jerusalem. This Gaza war may not necessarily involve Jerusalem directly as yet, but the broader Palestinian peace process so-called does. And our editor-in-chief in his 
booklet Jerusalem Prophecy talks about how this half of the city going into captivity is actually the countdown for all these other chaotic events to happen before Christ's return for World War even. And again, we don't know how this peace process is going to turn out, but anything major that happens between the Palestinians and Israel will eventually somehow factor into that. If our listeners would like to learn more, just with, again, a big picture overview on what's happening with Israel and Hamas, who who's pulling the strings behind Hamas, other issues like that, uh, I'd recommend reading our article, The Real Power Behind Hamas. That's The Real Power Behind Hamas that came out in our print edition just after the October 7th massacre happened, and it could help fill in some of the context. The name of that article, once again, The Real Power Behind Hamas by Philadelphia Trumpet Executive Editor Stephen Flurry and our own Mihailo Zekic. And then the booklet that he mentioned there by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Cheryl Flurry is called Jerusalem in Prophecy. We will leave a link to both of those in the show notes for today's Trumpet Hour episode for anyone who would like to understand Zechariah 14 and just the overall big picture of what to expect for Israel. Well, thanks very much for that, Mahilo. We move on now to Asia, which Rafaro Manyepa has been keeping an eye on this week. What can you tell us about the news from the Orient this week, Rafaro? Well, this first story, this is from The Times. It was reported on Tuesday that Russia wants to establish a naval base at a port off the coast of Libya. It plans to station nuclear submarines there. And Russia already has two bases in Syria. This would be another base giving Russia direct access to the Mediterranean Sea. Now, this story might not seem as important as others, but if you just look at a world map, directly north of Libya is Italy. And Italy is highly concerned by these developments. When you consider the fact that Russia is it's almost obsessed with having more warm water ports, one of the main reasons for the annexation of Crimea, which it's hard to believe that was about a decade ago now, is the fact that it gave Russia Sevastopol, the warm water port, into the Black Sea. Ten years on from that, Russia is at war for all of Ukraine. So you can see why Russia establishing another base near a warm water port would be so concerning to Italy. It's something that makes Europe as a whole so much more nervous. And we've written a lot at the trumpet about watching Europe's reaction to Russian aggression. And another story from this week is the reports of one Chinese plane flying military supplies into Belarus four times between January 8th and 11th. This plane had parked in the same place in the Minsk National Airport. It's a place usually reserved for government planes. It's the place that Belarusian President Lukashenko himself uses, and this allows for the bypassing of customs areas, and that's why it's believed that there were military supplies on board this plane. And obviously, the implication here is huge. Why else would Belarus be receiving military supplies from China? Well, it's to pass along those military supplies to Russia in its war against Ukraine, and and it's a war that it seems more and more like Russia is winning. And a huge part of that is because of all of the help that Russia is receiving from its neighbors. So some uh, some notable developments there for sure, especially with this you know apparent evidence that China is arming Russia and helping its war machine to keep on humming along despite Western efforts to isolate the Russians. So those are some very significant items there. And then you've got another story that you view as even more important. Yeah, and it works well just with this idea that, you know, Russia is being armed by its allies. They're helping it in this war against Ukraine. Well, on Wednesday, Bloomberg came out with a pretty significant report, basically telling the world that Russia is outgunning Ukraine almost three to one. Russia is able to fire off over 6,000 shells of artillery every single day. Ukraine is barely able to muster 2,000. Not only is Russia successfully sustaining its weapon supplies uh, through this help from its allies, like we've been saying, but Ukraine's shortages, on the other hand, are only getting worse. Ukraine's defense minister wrote to the EU this week, and he put it pretty bluntly. Here's what he said. He said, quote, the side with the most ammunition to fight usually wins, end quote. Ukraine's war prospects look pretty grim. 
where Ukraine is only getting half the amount of the artillery that it needs, Russia is receiving almost twice as much artillery as Ukraine is. There's a lot of talk of plans uh, for the EU to give Ukraine more ammunition and, and the U.S. to increase their production in order to give Ukraine. And just yesterday, fortunately for Ukraine, the EU approved a 50 billion dollar a 50 billion euro aid package for them uh, which is a pretty significant lifeline for them but in terms of artillery the eu is behind its production schedule for this year and it can only give them more munitions help only produce more munitions help for ukraine in 2025 when you look at america it's in an election year right now and the issue of giving Ukraine aid is being connected to the U.S. border crisis, something that's going to turn probably really bad for Ukraine. House Republicans have refused to pass the additional spending bill until they reach an agreement to increase security at the U.S.-Mexico border. If President Biden wants a supplemental spending bill focused on national security, it better begin by defending America's national security. With additional funding stalled in Congress, Ukrainian troops on the front lines are adapting to smaller deliveries of military aid. Today, deliveries run about a third what they were at the height of the counteroffensive back last summer. By the end of the spring, they'll be under 10 percent. They never go to zero, but by the time you get to the end of the summer, uh, Ukraine will be hard-pressed to replace its losses and to maintain its front lines. So we're seeing Ukraine really in a struggle for survival right now. And it doesn't really seem as though it's going to get much better anytime soon. And on top of all this, you've got reports in Ukraine about how there's a lot of corruption. The military aid funds that are coming in are being stolen by government officials. We've got this recent report now as well about how Ukraine President Zelensky, he's about to dismiss their top general. This is a general who came out and he said Ukraine doesn't have enough troops or enough advanced capabilities to overcome Russia's larger and better armed forces. He basically said that these things had to change for Ukraine to, quote, ensure the existence of statehood and that Ukraine needs the wholesale redesign of battlefield operations and the abandoning of outdated stereotypical thinking. End quote. Those are some pretty strong words coming from this man. And, and for one reason or another, he's about to be ousted from his job. But he looks at the situation and he thinks that it's really bleak for Ukraine. So for those who think Ukraine, you know, has the right to defend itself against this Russian invasion, this is some extremely worrying news, a pretty grim outlook, as you said. And we know that this comes after the United States has ended its support for Ukraine. America is no longer helping this partner that we vowed to assist. So, of course, that's a big part of the reason why Ukraine does not have enough ammunition. But at the same time, people have been kind of hastily writing Ukraine's epitaph in this war since the very beginning. And yet the Ukrainians keep on defying expectations and fighting on. In your view... Is it different this time? And is this actually the beginning of the end for Ukraine? Well, it's interesting because, you know, nobody, like you said, talks about this war in the way that they did before. Granted, there's a lot that's been going on in the world lately, especially since October 7th. That's just kind of taken the spotlight away from Ukraine a little bit. But at this point, most of the media is reporting that there's a stalemate between uh, Ukraine and Russia, that, that things are kind of grinding to this middle ground. You can probably take that with a grain of salt. You'd imagine that if it looked like Russia were about to lose, or if Ukraine had a significant chance of victory at this stage, funding them or providing munitions wouldn't prove to be as difficult as it seems to be right now. But when you compare these two groups by the actions of their allies, you know, Russia's allies seem to be the more enthusiastic. They seem to be the more optimistic of victory. You know, barely anyone in the West is trying to convince us anymore that Ukraine is winning and that Russia is on the verge of collapse anymore. And the longer this war goes on, the more the opposite seems likely. 
Our booklet, The Prophesied Prince of Rosh, talks about how Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, this leader that for so long has been counted out, uh, who many people have hoped would be ousted by this war. It talks about how he's here to stay. In Ezekiel 38, the Bible talks about this Russian leader who unites different Eurasian groups and and leads the the military alliance. Our editor-in-chief, Mr. Gerald Flurry, he's identified Vladimir Putin as that leader. And we've been saying that from the beginning of this war. Now, we're, we're not certain, you know, how this war will end, when it'll end exactly, how everything's going to play out. And, and like you said, it's it's been pretty amazing to see Ukraine's resistance against this massive force that Russia is. And the fact that, you know, we're, we're, we're now a couple of years on from the, the outset of this war, about to the, get into the third year now. But what we know is that when all is said and done, Vladimir Putin is going to be standing there front and center. He's going to be leading a massive, united, enthusiastic Asian military force. And Russia, at that point, will be stronger and more powerful even than it is right now. The Prophesied Prince of Russia is the name of that booklet by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. So we will leave a link to that in the show notes. And thanks very much for bringing us up to speed on that, Rafaro. We move now to Europe, which Daniel DeSanto has been watching this week. Daniel, what can you tell us about the developments on the continent this week? Well, this week we have quite a strong German theme for our news, actually. First of all, one story I've been looking at is a meeting between German officials and Hezbollah's number two leader in Beirut and Lebanon. So we don't know a whole lot of information about all the specifics, but what we do know is that it was between the German director of foreign intelligence and in Hezbollah's number two, the Sheikh Naim Kassem. So according to the newspaper report from the Lebanese Al-Akbar newspaper, that's January 28th, that came out. The goal of this meeting was to dissuade Hezbollah's leadership from entering the war in Gaza with Israel. So this is something we've been paying attention to ever since the conflict really exploded onto the scene on October 7th. And then just after, there was, of course, that famous speech on November 3rd by the Hezbollah leader, Hassan Nasrallah, where everyone was expecting him to declare war on Israel, but he didn't. And we analyzed that at the time and talked about how it was likely because of German involvement. And now I think this just confirms everything that we've been saying up to this point. If you look at what Chancellor Scholz has actually said regarding this situation, we can see a clear trend, which is really fascinating, of Germany actually warming up to Israel and seeking to defend Israel even more so than what the United States has offered up to this point. For example, he said... I expressly warn Hezbollah and Iran not to intervene in the conflict. And then after Iran had some comments in return, he said, anyone who plays with fire in a situation, pours oil on the fire or otherwise ignites it, should think twice. Those are some pretty strong words from Germany. And Mr. Flurry, the editor-in-chief at the time, he asked, is it possible they are afraid of Germany? Meaning Hezbollah being afraid of Germany? Well, I think this news might just confirm that even more because we now see Germany positioning itself as Israel's defender, whereas the U.S. is less and less on the scene. The U.S. is now considering even recognizing a Palestinian state. So it's quite an interesting shift we're seeing away from that traditional alliance there with the U.S. and towards an alliance with Germany. The second story we've been watching, to take a break from Germany for a moment here, is that the European Parliament voted January 18 to extend the scope of criminal offenses related to hate crimes. So essentially, hate crimes were already actually a crime at the EU level, but now it's been extended to different elements, even further elements. And it's just it just goes to show how much control of social media and how much control of speech the EU is actually getting. Now, an EU crime is actually something that, it's a technical term, but it applies to things like terrorism, trafficking of arms, of drugs. It applies to organized crime, money laundering, things you'd think of as traditionally criminal or mafia-related behavior, things that would be 
generally dangerous, immediately dangerous to people's well-being, like terrorism. Well, now hate crime is also among these things on this list. Okay, yeah, some significant uh, developments there. And then there's still another development that you view as even more significant. Right. So now, well, we transition back to Germany again. And Germany is now talking about preparation for a major war. This is something which definitely has a lot of historical significance. So what happened here was that German Defense Minister Boris Pistorius warned in an interview on January 19. So that would be last week that Russia could attack Germany in five to eight years. That's a pretty short amount of time for Europe to be thinking about going into a major war with the other major power, which is just beside it, which is just its neighbor there to the east. And then following that, a man who we have watched very closely, who is quite an interesting individual, Carl Theodor Zugudenberg, gave an interview on January 25th to Bild, and he agreed with those statements. He went so far as to call it Germany's duty to rearm. He said about Russia, it may well be that the taste of blood calls for more. So what he's saying is Putin has already tasted blood. He's already gotten this far into the war. Now there's the support from the allies of Ukraine is starting to wane. And if this continues, he might just go through with it. And then once he's done with Ukraine, what will come next? Well, the logical next step is that he would continue advancing towards Eastern Europe. And that's how a lot of Germans view it. That's how the defense minister views it. And that's how Mr. Zygudenberg views it as well. He also said about Putin and his trustworthiness or lack thereof, I trust Putin as far as you can throw a piano. So I don't know anyone who can throw a piano. <laughs> I think that goes to show what his views of Russia really are in that sense. And then he's also said a lot of scathing comments about just America's lack of involvement and the lack of support, which he sees on their part, which is why he says Europe has to rearm. For example, Trump's return in the minds of European leaders, this is becoming more and more of a distinct possibility. It's basically looking like it's going to happen even to them. And he's called this an absolute horror scenario. So as we can see, war is again on the minds of a lot of these European leaders. It's a radical change because, of course, as we know, at the end of World War II, the Allies said it was their duty to keep Germany down, to not allow it to rearm. But what does Europe do in the face of waning American support for Ukraine or even in the face of indecision at the EU level about aid to Ukraine, as we've seen recently with Hungary opposing that? Now, Gutenberg commented on this as well a bit earlier. He said, we have two conflicts Ukraine and Gaza, both are ensuring that the Americans are doubly distracted. So Germany has traditionally, of course, been quite reticent when it comes to rearming. But this is quite rapidly changing because of the fear which Russia's invasion of Ukraine is inspiring. Now, what is the solution that Karl Theodor Zygutenberg recommends? Well, his recommendation in order for Europe to rearm and prepare for this conflict in, like he said, just five to eight years, is that they pool their resources. He wants Europe to get together and produce arms as quickly as possible to avoid duplicated effort and to share manpower and share their production and coordinate. And this is exactly what the Trumpet has been looking for in this area for a very long time. We've been talking about a unified European superpower emerging, and not just out of the blue, but because of something that happens with a threat posed by Russia. This is exactly what we've been talking about. And Mr. Fleury our Trump editor-in-chief, said the Ukraine war is going to speed up the rise of this prophesied German-led alliance. And it's not just Germany, it's a lot of other countries as well, as we can see. Not everything is planable, not everything is going to be honky-dory in the next 20 years. I'm not saying it is going wrong tomorrow, but we have to realize it's not a given that we are in peace. And that's why we have the plans, that's why we are preparing for a conflict with, uh, uh, with Russia and the terror groups, if it comes to it, if they attack us, we're not seeking any conflict. So that was Admiral Rob Bauer from the Netherlands. And he's basically said at the NATO level that Europe needs to rearm and prepare for war as well. Now, why does this resonate with people in Europe more and more? Well, a lot of times when people think of German remilitarization or Europe remilitarizing, 
they have images in their head of what happened in the 30s and they think of maybe panzers going down the street and big parades of German soldiers marching down the street. But that's not how this is being sold. This is being sold as purely defensive and as a necessity. And because of that, a lot of people who perhaps otherwise would oppose this kind of thinking are really getting on board with this new mentality in relation to defending Europe from the Russian threat. So, Daniel, we know that uh, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz made some similar sounding statements near the start of Russia's war on Ukraine, just really stressing the need for Germany to make a turning point in its military preparedness and the need for greater EU unity. But um, many feel like the steps that have been taken since then didn't really amount to as much as they would have expected. Why should we pay more attention now to this man, Karl Theodore Zugutenberg, who hasn't even been in the political arena for a number of years? I think there are three important elements to address that question. First of all, we know that he said specifically he's not interested in politics, but we also know that a lot of people who say that, when confronted with a situation they view as their duty, end up changing that perspective. For example, even... You could look at Donald Trump, who for the longest time wasn't in politics, but then decided because of what he saw as a duty to his country that he wanted to get involved in that again. So that's one aspect of this. There's simply the possibility that he will have a mind change. It's also worth noting that he wouldn't necessarily say he wants to get back into politics right now because that would just take the window out of any possible future announcement of his return. So I think it wouldn't be a wise strategy to admit that he wants to go back into politics. Now, let's look at even what Gutenberg is currently doing. Is he acting like a politician? And I would say more and more so that that is the case. He's become recently a media personality. He has his own podcast. He's even appealing to the left because in this podcast, he has teamed up with a leftist politician, Gregor Yisi, as well. And that's helping to bring some on board as well and just show that he's open to discussing these sorts of things. So his appearances and his comments and all his interviews are just appearing more and more frequently as these crises get worse. And I think that would also point to a more political orientation in his thinking. So the last reason why I think this is quite important to pay attention to is that the trumpet has been watching this for a long time and we've written even a booklet about this entitled A Strong German Leader is Imminent, as well as an article in the February 2024 trumpet called Watch This Man Closely. It draws on prophecies in Daniel 8.23, talking about a strong man who will come to power in Europe by flatteries or also being invited in, and that's Daniel 11.21 as well. And Gutenberg's qualifications fit this, proposing all these solutions and simply waiting to be invited in, and then having also the understanding he does of modern technology and modern warfare, I think just makes him an excellent candidate to be called upon when these crises come to a head. Watch This Man Closely is the name of that article by Trumpet Editor-in-Chief Gerald Flurry. We will leave a link to that in our show notes for today's program, so please check that out. And thanks very much for that, Daniel. We will turn our attention now to the U.S. and Britain, which Andrew Miller keeps a vigilant eye on. Andrew, what were the big developments in the Anglo world this week? Yeah, in the Anglo world this week, a survey by the nonpartisan Public Religious Research Institute found that Generation Z adults are four times more likely than their great-grandparents to identify as lesbian, homosexual, bisexual, transsexual, or queer. A series of investigative reports published by ProPublica, Insight Crime, and Deutsche Welle established that Mexico's president has accepted bribes from the Sinaloa drug cartel. And Donald Trump reportedly told his advisors that he is prepared to raise tariffs on Chinese imports by 60% when he returns to the White House. Yeah, some uh, notable developments there for sure. And you've got another story, I understand, that you view as even more important. Yeah, well, the story I definitely wanted to uh, highlight this week it actually has potential Civil War-like repercussions in America. It has to do with the southern border crisis. For those who've been watching that, you probably know that over 7 million people have been apprehended at the southern border since Joe Biden took the oath of office. That's more people than even live in the entire nation of Libya, and it doesn't include those who got away and weren't apprehended. 
And so uh, Texas, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, has considered his state basically under invasion. The numbers are so high and has been putting out border wire in order to try to at least slow the flow of immigrants across that. Now, the Biden administration doesn't like that and have been coming along and cutting the border wire, which Texas has spent something like $11 million on. And this has elicited an intense legal dispute between Texas and the Biden administration, which the Supreme Court recently came in and said that they uh, gave a temporary order that said until further notice, the Biden administration can keep cutting the wire. This week, actually, 26 other attorneys generals from 26 states across America sent a letter to the Biden administration supporting Texas. And so you've, you've got like half the states on Texas's side, which is really significant because Greg Abbott in Texas, he's basically he's come out and said that the Biden administration has violated the basic compact between states and their federal government, that the federal government would protect the states from invasion and has invoked a clause in the Constitution that gives the states the right to defend themselves from invasion when the federal government doesn't take action to claim that pretty much no matter what the Supreme Court says, he is going to keep trying to defend Texas's border from Mexico. And so uh, it really elicits a constitutional crisis when states actually have to start ignoring both the executive branch and the Supreme Court in order to get your basic constitutional right to a secure border. A number of analysts have said that this is some of the wor- one of the worst constitutional crises since the one that actually started the Civil War in the 1860s. Wow. And you could definitely see if this court division continues things even going in a Civil War-style direction. Could you talk about the big picture significance of this, how it fits into the context of Bible prophecy? Yeah, there's a number of prophecies we could point to. I think the resource we'll put in the show notes is a trumpet brief from our executive editor, Mr. Stephen Fleury, titled Biden versus Texas, A Federal Right to Lawlessness. But I would like to highlight the prophecy in Deuteronomy 28, verse 52. Deuteronomy 28 is a really pivotal chapter in the Bible. It's the blessings and cursings chapter. It's the chapter of all the good things that come on a nation that obeys God and all the bad things that come on a nation that disobeys God. And in Deuteronomy 28, verse 52, it talks about end-time Israel being besieged in all its gates until its high and fenced walls come down, wherein you trusted throughout your land, and you'll be besieged in your gate. It's talking about this like foreign enemies besieging the United States in the end time and the high and fenced walls coming down. And so in this case, it's like the Biden administration stopped Trump from building a wall on the southern border. And now they're even going on and cutting open the razor wire that the Texas government's trying to put on the southern border. And it's really creating siege-like conditions where over 7 million illegals can just pour into the nation basically uninhibited. In an ironic twist, this seems to be the way the uh, the radical left wants it, although um, Moses laid it out very specifically that an open border is, uh, is one of the curses. It's not a good thing to have an open, unsecured border, but that is what the Civil War level dispute is over, is the open border, uh, and it's something that is really bringing America down in, in many, many ways. That article, once again, is called Biden versus Texas, A Federal Right to Lawlessness by Trumpet Executive Editor Stephen Flurry. So if you'd like more details about this alarming situation at the U.S. border and how that fits in the context of Bible prophecy, you can check that article out at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much for that, Andrew. We'll take a quick break now. When we come back, we'll talk about the United Nations and its profoundly disturbing role in Hamas's October 7th massacre in Israel. We'll be right back. You're listening to Trumpet Hour, the week in review. 
Welcome back to Trumpet Hour here on KPCG 101.3. I'm Jeremiah Jock, and I'm joined today by Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, Daniel DeSanto, and Rafara Manyepa. And for our final segment to the show, we will discuss some revolting revelations about the United Nations. To bring us up to speed on this, we'll go once again to Mihailo Zekic. Yes, so Israel has been sharing intelligence with uh, Western governments lately that have been since released to the media media and being reported this week that the United Nations Work and Relief Agency, or UNRWA, that's the agency responsible for providing humanitarian aid, so-called, as we'll find out soon, to places like Gaza, the West Bank, working with Palestinian refugees in other countries, or so-called at this point. It's been decades since uh, the state of Israel was declared. But the intelligence specifically states that this agency is compromised in a very, very massive way, and so massive to the point that it actually contributed to the October 7th massacre. And when I say contributed, I mean that employees of the agency were literally part of the assault on Israel that day. And many, many more of those employees have connections somehow, whether family or other ways to both Hamas or to Palestinian Islamic Jihad, another prominent terror group there. bit of context, the agency employs about 12,000 staff in Gaza. Most of them are Palestinian. And according to the Israeli intelligence reports, at least 12 of those Employees participated on the October 7th attack and further around 10 percent of all of the re- of its Gaza staff have ties to militant groups of those 12. Uh, seven were actually teachers in uh, U.N. run schools. Two of them helped kidnap Israelis in the raid. Two of them were actually tracked to sites where Israeli civilians were shot and killed. Others coordinated logistics and that sort of thing. This isn't really anything new, but Israel also shared with the international community further proof that these schools that the UN has been running, some of these other institutions were used as command centers for Hamas, were used as infrastructure to help build their tunnels, weapons caches, and furthermore, that enough people working for the UN knew about that and either were part of what was going on there or just kept their mouth shut. We've talked about the corruption and the anti-Semitism of the UN for a long time. None of this may be that new for longtime listeners of the show, but the international community is acting like it's something new. And 17 different countries, plus the European Union, have decided to at least temporarily suspend funding to UNRWA. Last year, they had a budget of $1.16 billion U.S. dollars, and all of that was flowing in, as we can see, to an organization that was helping Hamas get ready for the October 7th attack and even participating in it. If you take the top three donors that suspended their contributions, the United States, Germany, and the European Union, that amounts to over half of that uh, money if we go by last year's figures. And this is concerning enough for UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres that he said that the agency might not actually have enough money to keep afloat for too long. So, well, it remains to see what tangible change this will mean on the ground, considering Israel is on the ground right now. The U.N. can't can't operate like it used to. Full effects probably won't be seen until after the war is over, but certainly pretty, I won't say unexpected, but certainly dramatic revelations coming from the Israeli intelligence community and dramatic responses from the rest of the world. Yeah, this is just truly nauseating to hear. The... uh UNRWA organization is financed largely by American taxpayer dollars, Canadian taxpayer dollars, and those of many other nations. So that's me. You know, that's many Trumpet Hour listeners. That's part of our paychecks. Every week, they have gone to fund some of the darkest and most demonic barbarity that you could imagine. It's it's disturbing beyond words. And we've been told for years that UNRWA conducts life-saving work and that it promotes human rights. And now we see that some of these guys were actually involved in and directly participated in rape, torture, mutilation, and wholesale slaughter of innocents. So just astonishing to see. Yeah, absolutely true. And and what's probably most frustrating and angering about all of this is that Guterres came out and he said that he's horrified and shocked at the news that's come out. You know, was he really horrified and shocked? You know, the the organization called UN Watch has for years 
been filing and documenting instances of UNRWA staff and affiliates and teachers praising Hitler, calling for the slaughter of the Jews. They've got years of reports identifying UNRWA staff promoting hatred and violence. They've even recently shown how UNRWA staff were celebrating what happened on October 7th. They've got this report that documents how one Muslim UNRWA teacher said that anyone who has an opportunity to kill a Jew and doesn't deserves to die. See, these are people who not only hate the Jews, but they want to kill those who don't want to kill the Jews. You know, and this is something that an UNRWA teacher said two years ago. And UNRWA has been receiving reports like these since 2015. They've said nothing. They've done nothing. They've refused to meet with UN Watch, and instead they've slandered and they've attacked UN Watch. It's not possible to get these reports of virulent anti-Semitism and to attack the messenger and be horrified and shocked when the messenger's message is publicly proven to be true. Not only did they know about all of this, they knew about it, they ignored the reports, and they attacked UN Watch. The UN is clearly corrupt from head to toe. Yeah, really disturbing to see this. Some people say, oh, this is just a few bad apples in Gaza, in UNRWA. But you're right. The uh, the response from Guterres and the fact that he's been given so many reports alerting him to what, what's really happening there, and yet he's ignored it all. He's kind of uh, filed it in the circular cabinet. They say it shows that this organization is fully corrupt up to the highest echelons. Well, this goes to what you were saying, Rufaro. We hear a lot about systemic discrimination these days well the statistics which we've got here show us that this is exactly what's happening at the un for example we can look at who gets named to different committees the appointments of the un are just outrageous for example disarmament iran is about to become the president of the un disarmament conference Uh, iran was also put on the un commission for the status of women before pressure from un watch got it kicked off of there I think we all remember the protests in Iran over that. Now, we can also look at the UN resolutions. For example, in 2023, there were 14 resolutions against Israel. How many against the rest of the world combined? Well, all the rest of the world combined only had seven resolutions against them. And most of those were to do with Russia and the war in Ukraine. The year before, in 2022, that was 15 against Israel and 13 against the rest of the world. So this has been going on for a long time. And if we go back to the appointments, who's getting appointed to what? Even back as far as 2020, there were five countries voted onto the UN Human Rights Council. Who were those five countries? Well, we had Russia, which, as we know, is known for imprisoning its political opponents. China, which we know has slave labor camps of Uyghurs and is a communist dictatorship. Pakistan, which is governed by Sharia law and its society. Uzbekistan, which is known for violence of police and repression of protests, and then Cuba, which is also a communist dictatorship and suffers from mass poverty, while the wealthy echelon is way above the ordinary citizen in their rights. So we can see here that there's just a problem which has been going on for a long, long time, and it's not just this one situation. Even with the appointments of Iran to the head of the Women's Rights Commission's where was the condemnation of all the violence against women in Hamas's attack? There was nothing against that. So we can just see that there's clearly a systemic bias going on here. Yeah, very alarming to hear about some of those uh, UN appointments in particular. It almost seems like the UN goes out of its way to appoint the least qualified governments over certain committees. And then from those positions of power, those corrupt governments are able to better protect themselves and better able to advance their their dark ambitions. I've heard it said that it's like putting a pyromaniac over the fire department, some of these appointments. And it is just very sobering, especially since the United Nations has often been described as the last best hope of mankind. If that were true, we would be in a terribly bleak situation. But I'd like to turn to Andrew now to wrap this up with some uh, input on the big picture of all this. Yeah, this is definitely uh, some pretty fascinating political developments, especially in light of the fact that actually the uh, um, the trumpets, the Philadelphia Trumpets founder, Herbert W. Armstrong, who ran the Plain Truth for decades before the magazine was rebranded, 
was at the inaugural session of the United Nations in San Francisco, California, in April 1945. And so, yeah, he's firsthand account. We actually had a firsthand account of the beginning of this institution. And he, he definitely wasn't optimistic on its chances. This is what he wrote at the time. He says, already I see the clouds of World War III gathering at this conference. I do not see peace being germinated here, but the seeds of the next war. The United Nations Conference was producing nothing but strife and bickering and was destined from its inception to end in total failure. Yet world leaders were pronouncing it as the world's last hope and the only and the only alternative annihilation of humanity. And so definitely the uh, the last several decades have proven that that analysis right. And now we actually with the um, benefit of hindsight, see that there were actually communist forces infiltrating those inaugural meetings. Uh, actually, I think Alger Hiss, who was a communist spy, actually signed Mr. Armstrong's pass when he walked in there. So wow. he didn't know he was a communist at the time, but a very famous communist that uh, <laughs> Mr. Armstrong met at that, at that conference. And so you could see that this was definitely... Um, this, this was never the caliber of people like we're at the Constitutional Convention. These were some people with some pretty um, Machiavellian ends at this conference. But even, even if it had been of the caliber of men that were at the Constitutional Convention, Mr. Armstrong definitely took a bigger picture overview of this as it wasn't just because some particularly wicked people hijacked this, although that did happen to some extent, but there's actually something like innately flawed with human nature itself. Mr. Armstrong, he commonly quoted Jeremiah 17:9 about the heart being deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. They said that really any peace attempt like what happened at the United Nations that mankind put together apart from God's Holy Spirit was going to fail. When he met with groups like this, he oftentimes talked in terms of like the way of give and the way of get. In order to have world peace, you have to live the way of give and you need God's Holy Spirit to empower you to do that. Any attempt, no matter how well-meaning, like the United Nations, uh, apart from God's Holy Spirit and that way of give, was going to be doomed to failure. And and in this case, as we've seen (laughs) throughout this roundtable discussion today, desperately doomed to failure as you've gotten some people without even natural affection, I guess as Paul said it, who've hijacked this project. We have a booklet called He Was Right. The he in the title is Mr. Herbert Armstrong. This booklet goes through many of the forecasts that he made over the years, including his insights into the United Nations that Andrew just brought us up to speed on there. We will leave a link to that in the show notes for today's episode so that you can order your free copy of that booklet. You'll also find links there to all of the other articles and pieces of literature that were referenced on the show today. Well, we are now coming to the end of Trumpet Hour. Please email any questions or comments you may have about today's episode to letters at thetrumpet.com. Thanks very much to our panel, Andrew Miller, Mihailo Zekic, Rafaro Manyapa, and Daniel DeSanto. Many thanks also to Parker Campbell and Isaac Lorenz for taking care of the audio work for the program. And we thank you, the listeners, for joining us on Trumpet Hour today. Until next time, keep watching your world. <laughs>